My favorite way to unwind and dive into something more fun is June's Journey. The game lets me channel my inner detective and unlock compelling stories, strong female characters, and a mystery I want to solve. If you like true crime podcasts, it's the perfect game to play along while you listen. The Hidden Object Mystery Game will put your detective skills to the test in the roaring 1920s. You play as June Parker as she tries to solve her sister's murder and along the way uncovers family secrets. Chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Mystery, danger, romance all await you if you download the game now. I'm on chapter four and wondering how these clues will help me crack the case of who did it and why. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. If you love Snapped, Women Who Murder, you're going to love listening to true crime or mystery titles on Audible. The audio title I'm diving into again is one of my favorites to revisit, Mindhunter by John Douglas and Mark Ulshaker. Even if you think you know the details of the cases, former FBI unit chief John Douglas took on from documentaries or the scripted show, the audio title goes above and beyond in bringing you along with him in his career, trying to catch serial killers and serial perpetrators. He used psychological profiling to dive into the minds of notorious criminals. The title includes his hunt for a killer in Alaska, the Green River Killer, and so much more. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. It is the home of storytelling after all. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. That's audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. They were a Caribbean couple making a new life for themselves far from home. When Alicia and Omar moved to Bronzeville, their life was good, very happy. But the couple's happy life comes crashing down in a storm of gunfire. She hears the three popping sounds. And then she hears Omar saying something like, mama, mama, mama. You see blood on the walls. You see blood on the floor. And as the investigation unfolds, detectives uncover a scheme built on lies, conspiracy, and revenge. He was going to take care of it himself. He wasn't going to go to the police. It just seemed, in all accounts, according to the police, that this was a hit. To be honest, it was the biggest backstab ever. It's not long before they come to understand that this is a very different kind of crime than the usual in Brownsville. I've been a detective 15 years, and this is something that I've never dealt with. February 24th, 2013, Brooklyn, New York. Just before 1 p.m., NYPD dispatchers receive a call of shots fired in the troubled Brownsville neighborhood. The caller is 25-year-old Alicia Noel Murray. During the 911 call, you hear Alicia, she sounds distraught, she sounds upset. She's telling the police that somebody's shooting downstairs in my home. She was scared. She ran into her bedroom, locked the door with her baby. So at that point, Detective Centeno and I, along with other members of the police department, respond to the scene. The police aren't going to show up to the home and rush in 
and start searching the home immediately, they're going to treat the situation as if it's a hostage situation. They were going to send the dog in to clear the house. We needed the apartment to be cleared. We didn't know we had an active shooter in there. With the canine unit still minutes out, officers talked to Alicia over the phone to keep her calm. But the young mother is terrified that the victim of the shooting is her husband, 37-year-old Omar Murray. There's certain instances where you can hear her speaking, and she's begging and pleading for them to come and get her. I did tell her, don't leave the room. Well, they finally were able to get in. In the foyer of the home, investigators find a middle-aged man bleeding heavily. His wallet identifies him as Omar Murray. By the time police get there, Omar is in bad shape. He's been shot three times in the chest. I don't know if he's breathing or he's not breathing. I don't know if he's alive or not. Omar Murray was born in March of 1975 in a rough area of Kingston, Jamaica. I left my son Omar when he was five years old and I migrated to Canada. So he was living with his biological grandparents when I migrated to Canada. We all lived with um, different family members, but we still always spent a lot of time together. Amora was our protector. Whenever anything happened, Amora was the first one to do something about it. In 1995, Omar's mother summoned her children to Crown Heights, New York, a thriving and vibrant neighborhood in Brooklyn. Omar started working as an iron worker. Omar and a friend recommend him for the job. He didn't really go to trade school, and I think he just learned from, you know, just working, basically, and learned the trade. I think he was maybe 21 at the time when he got the job. That was good money for him. And, and um, so, you know, he was able to do what he wanted. With a large paycheck coming in, Omar wanted to settle down with a wife. But over the next few years, Omar bounced from woman to woman, fathering two sons. He was always about family, and that's what, that's, I think that's what Omar always wanted, a family. After his latest relationship ended, Omar moved back home with family, next door to Alicia Noel. Like Omar, Alicia's family hailed from the Caribbean. Born in 1987 in Brooklyn, Alicia was a quiet and studious person by nature who focused on grades rather than boys. She's always been reserved, and it takes a bit of getting past, you know, it's like peeling an onion, if you will. But once you get to know her, she's a good person. After high school, Alicia became a certified nursing assistant and made good money as a home health aide. She's a registered nurse. Uh, that's something that she loved since her mother was also a registered nurse. That's where she got the bug to help, if you will. She was working very hard to pay bills off and purchase a home and have a good life. 
It was in 2007, while Alicia was recovering from minor surgery, that she struck up a conversation with her neighbor, Omar Murray, who was 12 years older than her. She was having operation, and he just check on her, how are you doing, how is it going? And so that's how they started speaking to each other. Omar and Alicia being both West Indian, they definitely blended better than other cultures. So it wasn't a hard match for the two of them to get together. Friends for over a year, Omar and Alicia started dating in 2009. Their relationship rapidly progressed, and within six months, Omar popped the question. For them to all of a sudden be engaged all within a year time frame, some people looked at it as they're moving too fast. That's Omar's life. And if he, he's happy, I'm happy. He's my son, and I love him. Alicia and her parents, we get along. I like Alicia. We like her. The whole family, after a while, get to know her, and uh, we accept her. On August 28, 2010, the couple married. And it wasn't a small wedding. They had color coordinations. They seemed happy. They walked into the hall together. It seemed like it was a festive occasion. When Omar and Alicia got together, it wasn't just Alicia um, coming into our family. We were one family. Alicia was like a sister. Alicia and Omar moved into a home in Brownsville. And with their two salaries combined, they were soon living the life they had always dreamed of. When Alicia and Omar moved to Brownsville, their life was good. I was always over, you know, go to their house, and we watch TV, we'll cook together. It was a very, you know, happy time. Then, in the spring of 2012, the couple welcomed a daughter. Now, more than ever, Omar and Alicia were dedicated to providing a happy and stable childhood for their little girl. Omar has already two boys before, so Omar was hoping that he would be getting a girl, which he did. So he was very happy. It seemed like it was the picture-perfect kind of situation. Then, on February 24th, 2013, Tragedy strikes the family when Omar Murray is shot three times in the family's foyer. Paramedics rush in, render aid to the individual that's behind the door. They rush it, they put him on a gurney, they rush him to the hospital. Officers find Alicia hiding with her 10-month-old daughter in an upstairs bedroom. As they escort the mother and baby down to an ambulance, they tell her that Omar's condition is very serious. Alicia was distraught. She was screaming. She was crying. She was upset. Now, as Omar's life hangs in the balance, can investigators solve this crime before their shooter gets away? We don't know what really occurred. We don't know if it was a home invasion or a robbery. We have no clue. Coming up, will the crime scene give detectives their first clue? As you walk in, you see blood on the walls. You see blood on the, on the floor. Was it a random robbery? Or had their shooter struck once before? We found out two weeks prior, Omar was shot at in front of his house.
On February 24, 2013, just minutes after 37-year-old Omar Murray is rushed to the hospital with three gunshot wounds to the chest, NYPD officers speak to their only witness, Omar's wife, 25-year-old Alicia Noel Murray. They escort Alicia outside of her home. She has a blank stare, no emotion. People, you know, sometimes they do act like that, you know, like because they're in a little bit of shock. I begin to speak with her, and I'm trying to find out more detail. Did she hear anybody break into her house? What was she doing before Omar was shot? Before 1 o'clock that Sunday, Alicia wasn't feeling well, so she sent Omar out to the store to get some ginger ale. She was recovering still from surgery, and they had a young child at the time that she gave him birth to not too long before that. She's at the second floor window. She sees Omar returning from the grocery store. She sees him park his car in front of her house. She sees him exit his car and walking towards the home. She hears him come in to her house. That's when she hears the three popping sounds. She's telling me after she hears the three popping sounds that she calls Omar's phone. His phone is just ringing. There's no answer. And then she hears Omar saying something like, mama, mama, mama. Alicia says that's when she dialed 911. She and her daughter are transferred to the same hospital where Omar was taken to get checked out. With the family in the care of doctors, investigators take a second look at the crime scene. As you walk in, you see blood on the walls. You see blood on the, on the floor. You realize that there's some type of struggle because the car keys that are dropped, the hat, and a bottle of ginger ale that's out of the shopping bag. We're thinking that Omar might have walked into a robbery. Detectives quickly rule out this theory when they discover that nothing appears to be missing. Omar's keys to the house, his keys to the car, his ID, wallet is all still on him. And, you know, it just showed these signs of something else happened here. They saw that there were cameras in the, the front of the home, so they were like, great, got a lead, surveillance videos. We went back to the apartment, you know, to recover the video and the video box, and it was disconnected. The wires were pulled out in the back. We were shocked and surprised that the cameras were not recording at the time that they were disconnected. Why would anyone pull those wires and not have it recording? At 1.58 p.m., investigators get an update on Omar's condition from Brookdale Hospital. The news isn't good. They let us know that uh, he was deceased. Alicia called me, and all she said, Omar's gone. I screamed, and I threw the phone down. My mother called and told me that Omar was dead. And I just froze. Without any footage from the security camera at the scene, investigators must canvas the neighborhood for their next lead. We knock on doors to see if we find any witnesses. And, you know, most of the time you get nothing. Nobody saw no one. 
Nobody sees anyone. If somebody gets killed or shot another day in Brownsville. You know, it happens so much. With no witnesses on the street, investigators return the next day, February 25th, with a different tactic. Myself and Detective Luke do a video canvas and realize that there's video diagonal across from the residence. Review the video and we see Omar leave, a black sedan pull up across the street. As the black sedan pulls up, I see a short male black exit the vehicle and walk into Alicia's house. A short guy enters the apartment, like without knocking, you know, it's like it, the door was open, he just walks in like he lived there. I see that same short individual leaving the house five minutes later, entering the black sedan and leaving. Later on, the black sedan returns. That's when I observe a taller male exit the vehicle, different from the short man that I saw early in the video. Same car, different individual exiting the vehicle and enters. A few minutes later, we see Omar returning home. Omar parks his car in front of his house and then walks into his house. Maybe two minutes later, two, three minutes later, we see the same individual who left the black sedan exit the house. As we're watching the video, we believe now it's not a home invasion. Who are the two men caught on camera? Investigators hope that Alicia might know. So they call her in for a second interview. When the incident happened, she was a widow. She was heartbroken. She was distraught. I'm trying to find out more detail if Omar had any problems in the neighborhood. And we found out two weeks prior, Omar was shot at in front of his house. Omar went to the store, which was not too far away from their home, to pick up groceries. And as he was making his way, he parked his car, and another car pulled up. A person came out, and they fired a few shots at him. And I believe the back window was broken, and Omar ducked, and he ran into the house, screamed for Alicia, help, somebody's trying to shoot at me. And the person, whoever the shooter was, ran away. Alicia asked Omar whether or not, look, do you want to call the cops, let them know what's going on? But he says he was going to take care of it himself. He wasn't going to go to the police. In fact, Alicia says that her husband was so determined to handle the situation himself that he took what she considered an extreme risk. I asked Alicia, why wasn't your cameras recording? She said that Omar had disconnected him early in a month. He went and got himself his own firearm after the first murder attempt on February 6th. He told Alicia that he needed to protect himself. Alicia suggests that Omar intentionally disconnected the security cameras in the event he might have to fire that weapon, in which case he wouldn't want his actions caught on camera. But what or who was Omar so afraid of? Brownsville consists of a lot of gangs. So because there's gang violence, a lot of our shooters are either gang motivated or gang related. We look at all the avenues, it could have been, been gang-related. Had Omar gotten mixed up with some dangerous people? And was he afraid of putting himself in more danger by going to the police? Alicia's telling me, Omar is a hard worker. Omar has no problems in the neighborhood. Omar's a family man. 
Investigators show Alicia the surveillance footage taken from the store across the street from her house, hoping she can ID the suspects. I ask him, who's the other individual who enters the house before Omar arrives? Alicia just, she grabs her chest and like, oh my God, someone else was in my house? Who's in my house? When investigators ask about the first man though, Alicia goes quiet. She tells me that's my boyfriend, Damien. Coming up, investigators discover cracks in the Murray's marriage. Alicia starts hearing these rumors about Omar sleeping around with prostitutes. And a surprise confession from a new suspect stuns veteran detectives. I've been a detective for 15 years, and this is something that I've never dealt with. Say goodbye to performance-robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower-grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus removes up to 100% of performance-robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell. Bravo's The Real Housewives of New Jersey a little zap, 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 zap. is all new. How is Teresa handling you becoming friends with Melissa? And conflict. That's who you want to associate yourself with? Runs in the family. I really don't want to answer any questions about Teresa. I'm going to have to rethink this. Strap in. You're bully. Don't poke the bear. For a bumpy ride. I see your true colors. You're dirty. Everybody was right about you. In all new The Real Housewives of New Jersey. Every Sunday at 8 on Bravo. And streaming on Peacock. Less than 24 hours after the death of 37-year-old Omar Murray, his widow, Alicia Noel Murray, confesses that she has been hiding a terrible secret. After I give her her rights, she tells me that she's having an affair with Damien LaBelle. My mouth drops. I'm like, do you have a boyfriend and a husband? And she tells me yes. Alicia tells investigators that the problems in her marriage began just months before her wedding day. They got engaged really fast, and they planned the wedding really fast. And during the planning preparations, Alicia finds out that Omar was having an affair with another woman and got the woman pregnant. And the child was born before the wedding date. She still went through with the wedding, which was like, okay, you're going into a marriage with the infidelity already. Alicia tells police that she hoped Omar would put his wandering ways behind him once they settled into marriage. However, Alicia says that shortly after the birth of her daughter in the summer of 2012, the problems started again. The pregnancy kind of put a little strain on the relationship. Alicia had a really horrible pregnancy in which she didn't feel that she got the support that she needed from him. As time was going by, Alicia starts hearing these rumors about Omar sleeping around. She approaches him about it, and he denies it, saying that he's working. Alicia says that after a few fights, 
Omar finally admitted that the rumors were true. To hear that the man is supposed to be the love of your life is just consistently look, having a wandering eye and not aiming at you, it's definitely a hurt ego, no matter what. She decided she's going to move him upstairs and she's going to stay in the family master bedroom. So it was very, very tense. According to Alicia, that's when Damien Lavelle came into the picture. Alicia says that she initially met Damien at the baptism of a friend's child in early 2012. She says, look, I didn't know him at that point. We just, he was the godfather, I was the godmother. Then, in January 2013, she ran into Damien again at a local barber shop. They would see each other here and there, and Alicia started having a friendship with him more deeper. They were hanging out a lot, talking on the phone, texting, and the relationship started to progress to actually having sex in the home. Alicia says that after just a few weeks, Damien began begging her to leave Omar. Damien believed that him and Alicia were going to be happy, live happily ever after. He was in love. He thought she was divorcing her husband or, you know, leaving her husband for him. But Alicia tells police that there was no chance of her leaving her iron worker husband. She was going to pick up with Damien, who might have been making $25,000 a year. This is, this is not somebody who she's leaving her husband with. I don't think Alicia saw any type of long-term goal with Damien. She was just going to use him for what the moment called for. In fact, Alicia tells police that by the time of Omar's death, her passionate affair with Damien had already started to fizzle out. Omar was trying to work his way back into her good grace. She had just had an operation about that time, so she wasn't feeling the best. So he made sure that the baby was taken care of. He did everything where the house was concerned. They were moving towards some sort of reconciliation. Alicia admits that she invited Damien over to the house after Omar went out on February 24, 2013. But she says she has no idea who Damien's passenger is. Could Alicia's lover be the mastermind behind Omar's murder? Damien didn't have a home of his own. And, you know, she's driving a car. Her husband had his own car. Maybe he could have his own car. The only person who stand to gain out of this was Damien. Alicia gives me information about Damien. She tells me where he works and where he lives. So we have detectives go to his house. We knock on the door. I ask Mr. Lavelle, can you come back to the precinct? And he says yes, without a problem. We escort him back to the precinct, and I read Mr. Lavelle his rights. He agrees to talk to me. Investigators ask Damien if he knows anything about Omar Murray's death. His demeanor was calm. He started speaking and giving bits and pieces at the beginning. And then he finally, you know, opened up. That's when Damien admits to police that he is responsible for Omar Murray's death. When Damien tells me that it's a murder for hire, I'm shocked. I've been at the 73rd precinct. I've been a detective for 15 years, and this is something that we don't investigate. This is something that I've never dealt with. There's a big weight lifted off their shoulders, and now they can, you know, just move forward and 
basically tell you the whole story. Damien says that February 24th wasn't the first time Omar's life had been in danger. There was a first attempt that failed on February 6th. A hitman arrives while Omar is outside his house and shoots at him. He misses, and so the gunman runs away. Whoever it was escapes. After the failed attempt, Damien says that he decided to call in a professional, a local Crips gang member named Kirk Porteous. Kirk hung out at the barbershop, and where that barbershop is is a heavy zone for where gang members hang out. And Damien hung out there very often as well. Kirk was the strong muscle if you had an issue. So everybody knew to go to him if you wanted somebody to, like, make a statement for a situation. Damien asked Kirk to do this for him, and he promised him some money. Kurt agrees to kill Omar because he's promised $3,500. Damien had given him $500 as a down payment and was promised to get paid the rest of the money after the job was done. Damien says that on February 24th, 2013, he and Kirk watched Omar leave his house just after noon. As Omar was heading to the store, Damien was supposed to, along with Kirk, complete the job at the parking lot of the grocery store. But then Damien and Kirk, they decided that it was too many people at the store parking lot. It was, it was daytime, it was a Sunday. So according to Damien, they decided to take it to another location. On February 24th, Kirk Porteous shows up at this house on Lot Avenue, goes inside. Omar gets up to the house with his groceries in the hand, and Kirk pulled the gun out and shot Omar. He shoots Omar Murray three times. He runs out of the building, gets in a car, and drives away. That's when Damien tells investigators that even though he carried out the crime, the murder wasn't his idea. It's not long before they come to understand that this is a very different kind of crime than the usual in Brownsville. Coming up, Damien tells all. These criminals, there's no loyalty. And will a very public confrontation bring to light the family's dark secrets? At Omar's wake, I said, what did you do to my son? On February 25th, 2013, just one day after 37-year-old Omar Murray was gunned down, Damien Lavelle confessed to detectives that he was involved in the crime. Now, as Damien sits inside an interview room, he is ready to admit something else. Damien claims he hired Omar's killer, but he wasn't the mastermind. Damien Lavelle says, I did this because the woman I'm seeing, Alicia, asked me to help her murder her husband. According to Damien, his relationship with 25-year-old Alicia Noel Murray, Omar's wife, 
had been fast and passionate. But after just a few weeks together, the relationship took a disturbing turn. Damien was being snuck into the home, and they're having sex, and she tells him, I need you to kill my husband. Damien thought it was an odd request. He had advised Alicia to get a divorce instead of going through with trying to kill Omar. But she was like, no, you got to kill him. You got to kill him. Alicia had about three separate life insurance policies out where the total would be close to $900,000. I'm like, wow, this woman is orchestrating her husband's death, a newborn's father, to cash in on the insurance policy. Damien says that Alicia even offered him a cut of the payout if he would help her. But according to Damien, his real motivation was that after Omar was dead, he would get Alicia all to himself. He thought he was going to ride off in the sunset with Alicia in the end if he completed the task that she asked for. Damien says that after the failed attempt to kill Omar on February 6th, Alicia had taken a more active role on February 24th. After Omar left the house that Sunday to go to the store for his wife, Damien came to the house to obtain the gun from Alicia and then give it to Kirk to then use it against Omar to shoot and kill him. After speaking with Damien Lavelle, he's placed under arrest and charged with murder. Now, detectives need to find the alleged gunman, Kirk Porteous. In attempting to locate Kirk, we go to his house. There's no answer. The following day, he walks into the 73rd precinct. I'm very surprised. This is the trigger man. He's walking into the precinct. I introduce myself to Mr. Porteous and escort him to the interview room. He was hired by Damien Lavelle for $3,500. He said that he originally asked for $5,000, but he got bargained down. When detectives ask about Alicia's involvement, though, Kirk says he has never met his victim's wife. This is not someone that Alicia is close to. The person that she's close to in this scenario is Damien. The only person who is speaking about this is Damien. He's the only one who's telling the story, and he's the only one who knows all the players that are involved in this. As investigators place Kirk under arrest, they know they need more evidence against Alicia before they can move forward. Then, on March 10, 2013, investigators open up the New York newspapers and find a stunning string of articles. It started to really become a page lead story because Omar's mother had accused Alicia of killing her son. At Omar's wake, Alicia just sat in the audience like a regular person, as if she was just getting ready to go to a party, eating her gum on her phone. No remorse, stone cold. I said to Alicia, what he did to my son? And she did not answer me. So I said to her, you killed my son. Alicia did not answer. I said, you bitch, you killed my son. 
Investigators reach out to Omar's family for interviews. Omar's family tells police that they are convinced that Alicia is behind Omar's murder. In fact, they believe this was the third attempt Alicia made on his life. I believe about six months or so before um, Omar was killed, there was an incident where Omar was having dinner and he became gravely ill. Alicia called me and said, Mr. Ashley, Omar's in the hospital. Doctors couldn't find a cause for Omar's illness, but in the following months, family members say that Omar's condition only worsened. He was just slim. He was just getting just slender. They'd never found out what happened. He just knew he felt ill. I would get a call and says, Miss Ashley, Omar's in the hospital. And I said, again? Why? What's going on? She don't know. And this was when I think things were strange. Omar's mom believed that Alicia poisoned him. Could Omar's family be right? Had Alicia been planning Omar's murder for months? Investigators subpoena Alicia and Omar's bank records. According to the account statements, Alicia's high-end lifestyle had finally caught up with her. She had credit card debts. She was in debt for hundreds of thousands of dollars. This almost $900,000 life insurance claim could have actually helped her relieve herself from the financial stress that she was under. Investigators are determined to keep Alicia from receiving even one penny of her husband's policy. We reach out to the insurance company and request them to freeze the policy. A police detective called them up and said, don't make this payout. This woman is a suspect in her husband's death. The insurance company tells police that they have called just in time. They say that Alicia had already demanded her payout on February 26, 2013, just two days after Omar's death. The insurance company says they will deny Alicia's claim. And although detectives have kept Alicia out of the money for now, they know they need to make an arrest. That's when police sort of start digging into you know, the other kinds of evidence. They start looking at phone records. There's phone calls back and forth between Alicia and Damien on the day of the homicide. There were also text messages. We got all the text messages about the times that he'll be leaving to go to the store and when he's coming back. Obviously, the police were able to provide physical documentation to show that this was a woman who had a vested interest in her husband's life ending. She left crumbs along the way, you know, a trail. And what about that surveillance camera that just happened to be disconnected when Omar was shot? Why would you not want to have your recording device working? Somebody had to pull those wires. My feeling was that it could have been Alicia. That, along with the text messages, provides strong evidence against Alicia. But truth be told, Damien's confession is the single most important thread that ties this case together. Who is saying what 
happens on those calls. It's only Damien. He's the only one who's saying, this is what she's saying, this is what I'm doing. When it's a case of he said, she said, I think that juries are loath to hang a person's life on that kind of evidence. Without more evidence, detectives are hesitant to move forward with an arrest. As months pass, investigators desperately search for more evidence. And less than a year after Omar's death, Alicia is already moving on. And in September 2014, she remarries. In our investigation, we realized that Alicia was remarried. She was remarried and also took her life insurance out on her current husband. Maybe she was planning to cash in again. NYPD investigators have discovered that Alicia Noel Murray, the number one suspect in the murder of her husband Omar, had taken out an insurance policy on her new husband. Worried that they are running out of time, investigators offer Alicia's co-conspirator, Damien Lavelle, a deal of 15 years to life in order to testify against Alicia. Damien takes the deal. And in December 2015, investigators finally make their move. It took over a year in the cooperation of Mr. Lavelle with cell site records, also assisting. We finally arrested Alicia. It really hurt knowing that she was behind all of this and we trusted her. No, and we didn't expect this. To be honest, with Alicia, it was the biggest backstab ever. In May 2017, Alicia and the alleged gunman, former Crips gang member Kirk Porteous, are tried together in Brooklyn Supreme Court. In opening statements, prosecutors argue that Alicia was at the very center of a plot to cash in on Omar's life insurance policy. In the end, those bill collectors will not stop calling. You will not stop getting mail, saying you owe. And she wanted to quickly get out of financial debt, and this was the only way she could think of to get out of it. He died because of financial gain, for the pursuit of financial gain. He died for money. How could you do that to somebody who you claim to love? There is no love in that. However, Alicia's defense argues that the real mastermind is the person who was smart enough to take a plea deal. The only person who has any chance of seeing daylight is Damien. She is guilty of making a bad decision regarding Damien, but she's not guilty of murdering her husband. On Tuesday, June 6th, Alicia takes the stand to plead her case. She said, if I didn't bring this guy home, my husband would still be alive. But that's a decision she made, and unfortunately, something that she has to live with. And I'm like, okay, here we go, waterworks. But there was nothing from her, not even a eye roll. There was just nothing from her. Cold, very stone-faced. In a million years, I would not I was not looking for that from her. It's like 
It was a different person living in her. The same place, but different attitude. On June 7th, 2017, the two separate juries announce that they have each reached the same verdict. Guilty. It just felt like Alicia went totally numb. And she didn't say anything. When I actually did look over, her expression was totally like she was done. On June 29th, 2017, during Alicia's sentencing, Omar's family finally gets the chance to speak directly to Alicia. Several members of Omar's family read letters. The quote that sort of made all of the papers was, you can serve 900,000 years in prison, one for every dollar in life insurance. I think they were able to communicate that to the judge because he gave her life in prison. I'm thankful for the judge that she got life, that's life without any possibility of parole. And I pray that this really happened, that she'll, you know, live the rest of her life in prison. If you get divorced, then you move on. But to kill somebody over something like that, that's evil. She's a black widow. I used to be angry. But that's not going to solve anything. You know, she is where she is, and I'm happy, you know, that she's doing the time for what she's done. But, you know, we can never have our brother back. I forgave her. I forgave everyone that's involved in my son's murder. But I would never forget. They take him, his body away, but he's still here. They can't kill him. His spirit, he lives on. He still lives on. On June 29th, 2017, Kirk Porteous was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Damian Lovell will be eligible for parole in 2032. Omar's mother, Eunice Ashley Henry, has filed for custody of Alicia and Omar's daughter. For more information on Snapped, go to Oxygen.com. Answers for Claudia, a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus explores a 15-year-old mystery, the disappearance of Claudia Lawrence on March the 18th, 2009. Claudia was a seemingly happy 35-year-old when she vanished without a trace. There was no crime scene, no CCTV of Claudia leaving her home, and no body found. She simply finished her shift, phoned her mum for a chat, and was never seen again. Claudia's mum, Joan, is now 80 years old, and she thinks this might be her last chance to find answers. I'm journalist Tom McDermott, and when I offered to help Joan, I had no idea what was in store. In Answers for Claudia, I speak to the people who knew Claudia, interview past suspects, and investigate the rumours and theories that surround this case. Why are the residents of the village Claudia lived in still so frightened? And what can we find out about the people who were closest to Claudia? You can binge Answers for Claudia exclusively on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app.